Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your Bible, your word to us. God, we thank you for your love. And we ask God for your blessing to be upon your people. I pray, God, that you would uh, show us the ways of Jesus, that it's more than just laws and directions, but it's how to live, how to be a good person, how we are to live within the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish up chapter 5 uh, tonight. We're going to start in verse 33, go all the way through verse 48. And just a, a really, really quick recap the past several weeks, uh, several weeks ago, we, we started talking about how life in the kingdom of God is only through reliance upon Jesus, that he's made available to us the kingdom of God, and that through that we can live life uh, in goodness and in rightness. And we discussed how it's just ordinary people like you and I who are the salt and the light of the world as we live in the kingdom. And in the past couple of weeks, these past two weeks, we've talked about the kingdom heart, that two weeks ago we talked about anger and contempt and malice, and then last week we talked about obsessive desire or lust, and how those things are foundational into how we, how we live in the kingdom, and that if we deal with these base foundational things of evil, how much further along we would be in our, in our kingdom lives. And this is what uh, we're going to wrap up today in terms of uh, our study. We're going to study these last elements that Jesus is going to address in chapter 5. And so with that, let's, uh, we're, let's turn to verse 33 in chapter 5 of Matthew. Now some of the, some of the things we're going to talk about um, may be confusing to some of you if you haven't been in the study the past several weeks. And if it is, go to our website, regenerationweb.com, and all the teachings are on there, and you can listen to past teachings to get up to speed as to what we're talking about here. Or you can simply ask me. Verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But I want to rephrase that, but your teenagers can do that. Change your white hair. But let your yes be yes, and no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. See, the old morality of the scribes and Pharisees was to make vows or, or oaths to convince people in kind of like roundabout ways, right? Ways to verbally manipulate a situation or how someone thinks or how someone's going to act. And the new morality of Jesus was to only say how things are, are or are not. To have uh, uh, transparent words, to be transparent with what you present in your words. And in a religious society like the Jewish one in Jesus' time, an oath was used to end a dispute or to end an argument. And they really thought that there were divine consequences to taking oaths or to swearing. So, so it was used as the final word in a dispute or an argument. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. But in a secular society like ours, swearing is more a formality. Most people don't believe that there are divine consequences when you take an oath or when you swear. Instead, you know, we, we, we take oaths or we're sworn under oath as a legal formality so that our court system can make it possible that, that we can be persecuted for a crime of perjury, right? So why, why is swearing or oath-making 
an inherently wrong approach to use on people. Why is that wrong? Well, it's a, it's a device of manipulation. And it's designed to override judgment and the will of the, one that, of the one that you swear to, right? And rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly upon them, you're trying to change things for them. And it's an attempt to bypass their understanding of things, to find a way around their better judgment, to attempt to control their will. And it's a selfish act to possess them for our own purposes rather than looking for what is in that person's best interest. And in the end, whatever consent they give is actually uninformed because we've manipulated their understanding of what's really going on. See, swearing or oath-taking doesn't respect those to whom it's directed to. That's why Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that people do it to impress others with their supposed sincerity, with a self-proposed or professed dependability or reliability. And that people do this to win acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. So it's a method for, for getting their way. It's, it's a, a manipulation. So they make promises or they state their intent or declare some point of information or interpret something in order to get their way. And they want their audience to accept what they are saying and do what they want. So they start off by saying things like, you know, God knows, right? Or, or they manipulate things and, and they manipulate things that we consider holy, like the Bible, and they start using it incorrectly, out of context, to lend weight to their words or, or their presence or their actions. But really it's just being used as a device of manipulation. And to coerce someone like this is violating their free will. And Jesus teaches that anything more than a yes or no comes from evil. And this evil is the intent to, to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and the choices of others. In James chapter 5, verse 12, Jesus' little brother, James, writes, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Swearing or taking oaths is really an irrelevant practice of Christians. Think about it. If you have to do, if you have to do such a thing, if you have to swear an oath or, or swear or take an oath to prove that you're not just using people, doesn't it just prove that you are? So in essence, swearing and taking oaths is disrespectful to others because it's telling them that all the other times that you've had discussions with them or talked with them, that it may or may not be true. Who knows, right? Because you're not swearing this time, so are you telling the truth or are you not? And kingdom rightness respects the judgments and decisions of people and, and it concludes it with what's best for their soul, what's in the best interest of them. And in order for our character to, to develop, we need to respect others' choices. Like God, God respects our free will. He doesn't force us to accept His love. He doesn't manipulate us to want to be with Him. And we are to be like God. We present things the way that they are, transparent. We're not hiding anything. Make your decision. Right? Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. 
The old morality of the scribes and Pharisees was that one would retaliate the exact same injury on the offender. So if you slap somebody, they slap you back. Right? The new morality of Jesus is not to retaliate, but to help. To help the one who has damaged you. And these are a couple of things I'd, I'd like you to notice here. Notice that these are responses to personal injuries. These are not addressing social evils or institutional evils. Not these bigger group things. These are addressing personal injuries. Personal to yourself. According to the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is in reference to a personal injury. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 21. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Second reference, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 14 through 21. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before God, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This was a law of retaliation, but it was a law of controlled retaliation. It made reciprocity available to the parties who were injured or harmed by allowing equal retaliation. It didn't allow for more, just equal. And this was a major point of the law and something that we struggle with today. Look at kids. When kids fight, and one punches the other one, right? They're not okay if you just... The other kid's not okay if you hit him once. The other kid has to hit harder, right? Or they have to hit twice, right? They want to, they want to in, injure more. But this is a really just way of doing things. It was actually a great advance in human civilization. And when we look at Old Testament, you think, well, oh, that's so barbaric, or that's so like antiquated. Like, Why are they doing that? Oh, hit back. But this was really just. Think about it. Think about how our world would be without this. You broke my leg, so now I'm going to come back, I'm going to break both of your legs. You come back, you break both of my legs and my arms. Where does it stop? The counterattack, the attack, the counterattack, the attack. But this law allowed for equalization. You broke my leg, I break your leg. Okay, we're done. Let's go back to farming. Right? We're done. We're cool, right? done. So, however, this doesn't really work in our world, does it? You know, I use kids as an example, but let's look at our world today. Individuals who take personal injury to new heights. Husbands and wives who don't want equality, but are looking for ways to get the upper hand on one another in a divorce. 
People at work who are backstabbing one another, sabotaging each other's work more than the other guy sabotaged theirs so, so that they can climb a corporate ladder faster. And the other thing I want you to notice is that these teachings follow those that we talked about before, right? Anger and contempt, obsessive desire. Because if we deal properly with our anger, with our contempt, with our obsessive desire, with kingdom hearts, how do you think we would respond when we're personally attacked? And of course, we would be tempted and we would be tested, but wouldn't our world be so much more peaceful if individuals led their lives with the control of anger, control of contempt, and the control of obsessive desire? But it's not so. People are absorbed with anger. They're absorbed with obsessive desire, so much so that the anger and the obsessive desires control them instead of them having control of those things. And if those things control us, there's no way to be good. There's no way to avoid being evil. How is it that a Christian can be personally injured and not retaliate? Well, we have Jesus. Jesus who has allowed us to see God. God who allows us not to be self-absorbed with ourselves, but to have a broader perspective, a kingdom perspective, an eternal perspective on our lives. And if you don't have God and believe that He's in control, then of course you have to take control. You have to act in your best interest because your interest is all you can see. You can't see everything else. You don't have the broad perspective. And you have to take matters into your own hands against someone who has injured you because who else is going to do it? You have to take it into your own hands. You don't have a faith in a God that's going to take care of your things. But it's precisely this absence of God and this absence of His perspective that allows someone without God to be consumed with anger, to be consumed with an obsessive desire. Without Jesus, you can't recognize humanity. You can't see your sin. You can't see that there is a God that will hold you accountable for who you are, what you do. See, those human traffickers that don't notice those 27 million people, they can't see the humanity there. They see them as commodities. They see them as dollar signs. They can't see their own sin. They see money. They see wealth, and they can't see the consequences of their actions. They can't see that there's a God that's going to hold them accountable for what they do. We talked about Christians being persecuted in India. Those persecutors don't recognize the humanity of the people that they're killing, they're robbing, they're raping. They can't see their own sin in the actions that they're doing. They can't see the consequences of their actions. But as Christians... We recognize humanity. We recognize our fallen state. We recognize that God is sovereign, that He's in control. And with that, we can be like Jesus and what He instructs us to be like. That's why Jesus can say in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Those without a relationship to Jesus really don't know what they are doing. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus... Here are compelling reasons to have one. So that you can recognize what you're doing. So you can accurately see humanity. So you can confidently know that you're not alone and God is in control. And actually He's on your side. He's on your side to act on your behalf. And He wants what's best for you. So let's go a little deeper into the four kingdom responses Jesus gives that illustrate the rightness beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. Because this is what it's all about, right? It all goes back to verse 20. To exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 39. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn the other to him also. The kingdom person is able to turn the other cheek when assaulted by an evil person. He or she is able to remain vulnerable and not attempt to take their own defense into their own actions. The kingdom person would rather allow themselves to be hurt than hurt the offender and remains vulnerable even when they are wrong. Notice that he or she doesn't attempt to turn someone else's cheek or to make someone else vulnerable. This is a personal behavior. They're controlling themselves, not someone else. But like the three other illustrations we're going to cover here, it's about what is appropriate. This is not a law of vulnerability. If turning the other cheek means continued abuse or that I'll be killed or maimed, then then I have to look at the bigger picture, right? I have to have a kingdom perspective. I have to have an eternal perspective, a bigger picture of what's going on. We have to be on alert for acceptable ways of removing ourselves from such situations. For example, if I'm assaulted and and my family is with me, I'm not going to wait for you to hit me. It's on, man. The ninja's unleashed, right? <laughs> because if you take me out, how am I going to defend my family? And I don't know what your intent is, right? With them, I don't know what you're going to do to them, so I'm not giving you the chance. No way. So now there are grounds, there are never grounds for retaliation or never grounds for revenge, though. Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. But you know what? I'll defend my family, which in this case includes defending myself. And, or in the case of abuse, you don't just take abuse. You have to involve others, right? So you don't just like get beat up around like stuff like that. You go involve others. You're not a punching bag. You're not a sex slave. You're not someone who should be talked down to all the time. Get other people involved who can help you if you're in in an abusive situation. Involve your community in that. And what we have to do is to decide before God what is appropriate. And sometimes that may mean that we do resist because in the bigger picture, it's not just about physical pain or humiliation, right? Verse 40, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The kingdom person is deeply interested in others' needs, even to the point of letting those who have won a suit against them to have more than what was sued for. The kingdom person is willing to offer to that person more than what that person wants. And they're able to retain a spirit of love and have a heart that wants to help. And they try looking for ways to help as much as they can. But again, this is not a law. If someone has taken my coat through a lawsuit, I, I, I might have a greater need for my shirt, right? So if I don't have a need and, then, and he does, then I can be generous with that. I can give him my shirt. Or maybe the person who took your coat has a greater need for your shirt than I do. So, so then I can part with my shirt because your need is greater than my need. But what if that person doesn't have any needs at all, right? Not even the coat that he won from me. Then you don't have to feel like you have to give him your shirt. It's not a law. If someone takes something valuable from me in the courts, I will, as appropriate, give him something else if it's needed by the person who sued me. I'll still help him in other ways as I reasonably can. 
I can't rob my family to give to this guy, right? I have to be appropriate in my action. Verse 41, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus is referring to a government official. An official compelling me to carry a burden for a mile to help him with, with his work, with the community work. And back in Jesus' time, any Roman soldier could require a Jew to help him carry a burden for one mile. So let's take, for example, a Roman soldier asked me to help him out for a mile. Let's just say hypothetically I'm a Jew. And there are Chinese Jews. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's a huge Chinatown and there are Chinese Jews. It's the law, so so I do as I'm told, right? I can pace out one mile and just one mile and that's it. And after a mile, I just drop everything. That's it, man. I'm done, right? See ya. You're on your own, right? And Jesus challenges us to look a little deeper, to look at my heart. The kingdom person is willing to go an extra mile when an official demands assistance, willing to do more than is required as an expression of goodwill towards an official in authority, as well as taking personal responsibility for for the community at large. They consider the problem of the official something of importance to themselves because they are, they're concerned with the general problem at large. So if I'm free to help him out more, I will. But I wouldn't also carry it another mile whether he wants me to or not and say, because Jesus told me to, said so. He did not. It's not a law. It still can be done with the wrong heart if I'm mad about it, right? Man, you're making me carry this thing. I can't believe it. So it's still done in the wrong spirit, isn't it? So let's say I'm a doctor who's on the way to save someone's life. I shouldn't go that extra mile with that soldier. I'd help him out if I was free to do so, but it's not appropriate right now, right? I have to say no. I, I can wish him well wishes and, and, you know, hey, good luck, man. i got to go help somebody that, that's dying, right? And there are other things that I'm responsible to do, and I have to make the appropriate decisions. What's important is that My heart wants to help, but it's not always appropriate to help. Now, if I just live this out like it was a law as Jesus was citing, doesn't it take away my responsibility to judge a situation? If I just looked at it as a law, then then where's my part in all this? It's to evaluate what is appropriate. God has given us that responsibility. He's given us the option to make right decisions. Verse 42, give to him who asks and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The kingdom person is ready to give to him who asks. They're willing to give to the people who have no prior claim of any kind to what they're asking for. It's simply because they ask. There isn't an expectation of getting something back in return. Nor will the kingdom person attempt to evade or ignore those who want to borrow from them. And I have some relatives like this. Like, oh, he's, he's going to ask me to borrow something. I'm going to walk the other way. No, we're not to do that, right? They don't give on the condition of reciprocity. Again, it's, not, it's, it's on a condition of what's appropriate, right? It's not a law. If you owe someone money, or if you've already promised to let someone else borrow money, you're not at liberty to give away money to help that person who asks. You have previous obligations. You have previous responsibilities, Right Now you have to evaluate that with all the factors before you, otherwise you make it a law in itself. Right, But God gives us that responsibility to judge the circumstances and to have a kingdom heart in our decision making. We have to determine if the gift of our vulnerability, 
our goods, our time, our strength is appropriate case by case. It's a case by case evaluation. That is our responsibility to God. If we merely obeyed the letter of the law, if we just looked at these illustrations as laws, it allows us to avoid individual responsibility. We wouldn't have to take ownership of the decisions because we make it because it's simply a law. We wouldn't have to take ownership of the decisions we make because it allows us to push the responsibility and, and the possible, possible blame to God, right? For not having better laws. I'm listening to all the laws, God. The only reason why it didn't work is because your laws, they stink. Right? You don't have to have any personal ownership of those decisions. And this is one reason why people who must have laws for their actions lead such a restrictive and deprived life. They develop very little in the ways of a genuine depth of godly character. In every situation, the question is not, did I do the specific things in Jesus' illustrations? Did I turn my cheek? Did I walk that extra mile? That's not the right question. The right question is, am I being the kind of person Jesus' words are illustrating? Am I being that kind of a person? So that it's a broad perspective that you can plug any situation in there and you can be that kind of person, not... Uh, it doesn't say anything about you hitting me in the back, so I guess I can hit you back. Right? And Jesus teaches us against the current beliefs, beliefs, and He reverses them in the kingdom. At a time when people believed harm should be returned for harm, Jesus says that in the kingdom, the presumption is that I will return good for evil and resist only for compelling reasons. I, I can make that judgment. I can make that call in the kingdom heart. In Jesus' time, people believe that what the legal force requires you to do is all you have to do. Jesus teaches that I will do more than I legally must in order to help others for the better of the community. Back in Jesus' day, the, the, the belief was that you only had to give to those who had a prior claim on you, like family or someone able to return a favor. Jesus tells us to give to people merely because they ask. They asked out of need. Okay, here you go. Remember that these are illustrations of how a person with a kingdom heart behaves. There are, there are a ton of illustrations that we can plug in here that are specific to us. It's not limited to these four things. It's about a kingdom rightness within our heart to act appropriately. For example, I, I was robbed at gunpoint several years ago. Two guys robbed a friend and me in a, in a parking lot uh, after we had a business meeting. Um, a little history to the story. I let my, my friend borrow 800 bucks to complete a business transaction. And, and we decided to meet at a restaurant, a fine dining establishment called McDonald's, so that um, so he could pay me back. And anyway, these guys followed us out to our car, and, and then they decided to rob us. And the, the kingdom heart tells me that my response should be not to take my defense into my own hands, right? I was really tempted to. I had 800 bucks. Cash in my pocket. Why my friend decided to give me cash, I have no idea. None. But he did. Maybe he was conspiring to get that money back. But thank God I didn't retaliate, right? Because someone could have gotten hurt. And it wouldn't be me because I would have pulled out the ninja. Right? But now if my heart got hardened by that event, I probably wouldn't be able to minister to people in the inner city. I probably would get really defensive in certain areas when I'm like here, like at the church, right? I probably wouldn't be able to minister to most of the people here. And you know, funny thing is that if the robbers simply asked me for money, I probably would have given it to them. 
But they just kept insisting on having my wallet, which I gave to them. And it didn't have any money in it. But when my friend gave me the money, I put, my, my, put the money in my pocket, but I didn't put it in my wallet. So these guys made out with like 10 bucks from my friend's wallet. And now I guess they could have sued me in court for whatever reason. You know, I misled them. I don't know. And that at that point, the kingdom heart of mine would be soft enough to help them out. Say, eh, okay, I'll give you some money still. That's all right. Or if one of the police officers asked for help, which they did since my cousin was the police or is the police sergeant in the city I was robbed in, we, could, we would go the extra mile to help. Which we did. We identified them in a lineup. We answered all their questions. We gave them our contact information. Whatever they wanted, we were willing to help them, right? And that was just not a good place for those guys to rob us. Because I, I just called my cousin. Like, hey man, I, I just got robbed. <laughs> Chopper, four police cars in less than two minutes. <laughs> they caught them. And notice that Jesus illustrations, what Jesus illustrations have in common. They're not passive, right? It's a determined love. It's an aggressive goodness. Notice the verbs here. Turn, have, go, give, right? And I'm not, and when I was robbed, I wasn't like not wanting to give them stuff, but I was like, oh, you're assaulting me. I don't really like it, but you're asking me for my wallet. I guess I'll give you my wallet. You could have asked for my money, but I guess you don't want it, right? And the funny thing is, is, these guys came up to me and they're like, give me your money, F this, F that, all, all these bad words, whatever. And I said, hey man, I can't, I don't understand what you're saying because it's like your hand's in the way. And he was like, give me your money. I was like, I got you, man. I got you. I made him do it like four or five times. It was really funny. And so, so I, I, I did them real quick. And thanks to my cousin, he was really cool. He got him up. He got him really quick. Anyway, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For you, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The old morality of the scribes and Pharisees was to hate your enemy. The new morality of Jesus is to love and bless your enemy as the heavenly Father does. And people who come against us count on our resistance and our anger to support their continued evil action. But as we turn the, other, turn the other cheek, the justification for their anger, for their evil, is no longer there. Right? Anger feeds upon anger. Patient goodness deflates it. Now if we keep slapping each other, our anger just escalates, right? If you slap me and I'm like... That's it, right? So if we respond the way Jesus illustrates out of an aggressive, determined love and goodness, not passivity, it forces people to question the type of people that they are, right? To think about, I just hit you, you're not doing anything back. Why did I hit you? It shows those who are hostile against us that they are not in control. And as we deal with these issues, it's important to involve the larger community as appropriate because these issues aren't dealt with in isolation. 
And so we see how foundational anger and obsessive desire are to evil. And once we have broken the power of anger and, desi- and obsessive desire in our lives, we know that the way of Christ in response to personal injury and imposition is always the easier way. It is the only way that allows us to move peaceably in the midst of harm and beyond it. And we can afford to live this way because we're given the right perspective from God. We're given the eternal perspective from God. We don't have to worry about, well, who's going to take care of this situation then? An eternal perspective is that we are able to see that God is in control. We can be vulnerable because we're invulnerable. And these teachings often cause people to throw up their hands in despair, right? Give up saying like, I can't do that. I can't do this because people feel that Jesus is laying down laws about what they have to do regardless of what the issue might be or what other um, obstacles in the situation might be to, to judge for themselves what is appropriate. And they just look at it as a law and say, oh man, I can't do that. How can I leave that guy on, on the surgery table, you know? How can I do that? How can I not protect my family? How can I do that? That's not what he's telling you to do anyway. It's not a law. They are not laws of righteous behavior for those personally imposed upon or injured. They simply can't be because they don't cover every situation that may arise. Right? Otherwise, there would be like millions of situations. If dot, if dot, 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 then dot, dot, dot. If dot, 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 then dot, dot, dot. God is looking at a broader perspective. He's wanting kingdom rightness, not like specific situations to things, right? These are illustrations of what a certain kind of person, the kingdom person, will characteristically do in situations, whatever situation it is. If you read them as laws, can't we just go about obeying them in in the wrong spirit? I can walk that extra mile, but I'm going to do it in anger. right? I can turn the other cheek, but I'm going to harbor resentment towards you the rest of my life. Right? And we're not talking about things one must do to be a Christian or go to heaven when we die. We're looking at how people live who stand in the flow of God's life right now, in the kingdom of God right now. And what is described in these illustrations by Jesus are characteristic behaviors of a person with a kingdom heart and how a person expresses who they are at the core of their being. Not just during challenging times such as being injured, but all the time. Simply being people with a rightness within us. And this is the rightness beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. And the bottom line to Jesus' teaching on rightness is love. See, love is not an illustration. It does not illustrate. Jesus gives us illustrations in the various situations He's shown us in verses 20 through 48. But love, love is the goodness beyond the goodness, beyond the goodness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not an illustration. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-8. through 8. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. People usually read the passage as telling them to be long-suffering. 
telling them to be kind, telling them to be free of envy and so on. Just as those who read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as telling them not to call other fools, not to look at a woman with lust, not to swear, not to go the second mile, all this other stuff, right? But what Paul is saying, look at his words, that it is love that does these things. It's not us. Love is what does it, right? And what and that what we are to do is to pursue love. And we, as we catch love, we can then find that these things are actually being done by us as a natural outflow of our being. Not by pursuing those actions, but by pursuing love, because love is those things. And what God is love, right? And these godly actions and behaviors are the result of dwelling in love when we have become the kind of person who is long-suffering, kind, free of envy, so on. And these things are hard for the person not living in the kingdom. They can't do it. But once the person enters, then what would be hard would be to act the way you acted before. It would be impossible to act the way that you acted before if you lived in the kingdom, if you were absorbed by love. Jesus does not call us to do what He did, but He calls us to be as He was. Saturated with love permeated with love. And the Pharisees' goal is keeping the law rather than becoming the kind of person whose deeds naturally conforms them to the law. The deeds of love, including loving our enemies, are what love does in us and what we do as the new persons we have become. Right? It's not the actions that we're looking for. It's a change within us that has a natural outflow of the type of person we become. And now, what are some ways we can overcome issues that are blocking the flow of God's goodness and power to us? Issues like materialism or, or wanting people's approval, anger, lust, whatever those struggles are. And I want to suggest the following um, verse that uh, James instructs us to do in James chapter, ver- chapter 5, verse 16. James tells us, "...confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed." The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So go to a trusted person and and confess your sins to them. Involve your community so that after you confess to them, you can ask them for prayer for you. Pray that you would have a kingdom heart, a tender heart, that it wouldn't be hardened towards God or to His people, that you would pursue love, that you would catch love, that you wouldn't be legalistic or, or looking at things as law as, oh, I have to act this way or I have to do these things. Look for... A heart change, not an action change, right? The action change can be done in absence of the heart. But if you change the heart, your actions will naturally follow. Those things don't, don't oppose one another, right? And there's this prayer that I want to share with you that is normally attrib- attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we awake to eternal life. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you so much for giving us the dignity to be involved in the decisions that we make. That it's not simply a list of laws to follow, that you don't desire to include us in our free will to make choices, but that you do include us. You do give us the dignity to make right decisions. And I pray, God, that you would bless us and change our hearts in that way. And for those of us who are struggling with um, how to go about doing things, those of us who are so focused on actions that there is little heart change, I pray, God, that you would reveal to them how to go about heart change, to involve the community here at Regeneration, to confess sins, to pray for one another, and to lift, us, lift each other up as we deal with kingdom issues. And God, if we, we have to deal with different personal injuries to our life, I pray that you would equip us to do the right things, that you would give us the wisdom to go about your illustrations on how to live in kingdom rightness and have a, a right heart for that. In Jesus' name, amen.